Chapter 20 A History of California, the Spanish Period. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 20 Russian and English Aggressions in the Pacific Northwest. The danger of encroachments by foreign powers has been given prominent notice in preceding chapters as a principal cause of the Spanish northwestward advance since the adoption late in the 16th century of the policy of the aggressive defensive. In the period from 1769 to 1781, when the future of the Californias was in fact being decided, and especially in the vital years 1773 to 1776, this factor, under the guiding hand of the great Viceroy Bucareli, was the real mainspring of Spanish action, though from the standpoint of the permanent foreign danger, rather than from that of a particular emergency. It is especially interesting to approach the subject of foreign conquests from different points of view, so as to bring out the importance of this factor the more clearly by providing a better perspective. As has already been pointed out, the Russians and the English were by no means the only foreign peoples who threatened Spain's domination of the Pacific coast. The Indians and the Chinese had their opportunity before Spain appeared upon the scene. The Japanese were at one time a potential peril, and the Portuguese and Dutch voyagers occasionally gave Spain concern. The French, for many years, were the most dangerous enemy of all, but with their disappearance from North America in 1763, as a result of their defeat in the Seven Years' War, they were no longer a menace. The people of the United States were eventually to become the most powerful, outstanding element, but their chance did not appear until the 19th century. In the time of Bucareli, there were only two peoples whom Spain had seriously to consider. These were the Russians and the English. In a review of Spanish foreign policy as a whole, during the reign of Charles III, 1759-1788, to 1788, and particularly in those years which were of most interest from the point of view of California history, it will be found that Spain was primarily concerned over the possibilities of a war with England. Russia, though a dangerous opponent in the Pacific, gave Spain hardly any cause for worry in Europe. There were troubles with Portugal and Morocco, but their importance lay in the relation which England bore to the situation, especially in the case of Portugal, whose aggressive activities in South America received English backing until 1776. Then the American Revolution produced a diversion in favor of Spain. To oppose England, the so-called family compact between the Bourbon crowns of France and Spain was brought into being. In 1762, therefore, Spain entered the war which for several years France had been waging against England. Having gone down to defeat in 1763, the Bourbon powers thereafter endeavored to strengthen themselves for a renewal of the combat, which, it was generally agreed, would inevitably eventuate. In 1770 to 1771, and several times between 1773 and the close of 1776, Spain was ready to fight, but France each time drew back. Late in 1775, however, a change in Spain's attitude began to be perceptible, which became marked after 1776. 
This was due, primarily, it would seem, to the American Revolution, which engendered a belief that Spain's participation in the war against England would be fatal, whatever the outcome. Victory, which would also mean independence for England's colonies, would result in the appearance of a dangerous neighbor in America, and in the eventual loss, perhaps, of Spain's colonial empire. Defeat would subject Spain to a like fate at the hands of England. Spain, therefore, hesitated to enter the war, though in 1779 she did so. These were the principal ideas in the diplomatic history of the period. As affecting the Americas, the danger point in a war with England was the West Indies and the neighboring coasts of the mainland. Whatever anxiety there was for Pacific ports concerned South America, and after 1773 even that region does not seem to have been important enough to have found a prominent place in diplomatic correspondence. As for foreign aggressions in the Pacific Northwest, they were then regarded as of such comparatively slight importance that they have not attracted the attention of even the most voluminous writers on the history of Spain for that period. Indeed, the danger of a war with England inevitably lessened Spain's fears concerning the Californias, for England's forces could be counted upon to concentrate in the Atlantic for any serious attack. Thus, it may be said that Russian aggressions in the Pacific Northwest occupied a place of no importance in the general scheme of Spanish foreign policy, and English aggressions were more important, if at all, only because England was regarded as a consistent opponent in all quarters of the globe. In other words, Spanish activities in the Californias were on virtually an independent footing. They depended on Spain's surmises concerning foreign encroachments of the North Pacific itself, without reference, or at most only very slightly related, to the state of affairs in Europe. Before dealing, in successive chapters, with Bucarelli's measures against the possibility of foreign conquests in the Californias, it seems worthwhile to trace the actual progress of the Russians and English in their endeavors to reach the Pacific coast in order to estimate what the danger really was. The Russian approach was largely in the hands of the Cossacks, the underlying causes being their yearning for new homes where they might enjoy personal freedom and the commercial stimulus of the fur trade. The first step was taken in the reign of Ivan IV, 1533-1584, when the outlaw Yermak led a band of Cossacks across the Ural Mountains in 1578 and conquered a Tartar kingdom on the Ob River. Thenceforth, the Cossacks made rapid strides across the continent. Ten men could conquer a kingdom, whether due to the superiority of their weapons or to other causes does not matter here. Tobolsk, Tomsk, Yenesiysk, Irkutsk, Yakutsk, and finally Okhotsk on the Pacific successively became centers of their activity and supply stations for the next point to the east. In fifty years they had advanced to Yakutsk over halfway, and eleven more years suffice to reach Okhotsk, where an establishment was made in 1639. From Yakutsk, they went southward up the Lena River to Lake Baikal, where silver mines were found. But here their rush was checked, the Manchu Tartars being too powerful for them. In 1646, they entered the land of the Chukchis in the extreme northwestern part of Asia, 
and were rewarded by rich finds of mammoth ivory. The Chukchis, however, were not pleasant neighbors, and were able to maintain their independence of Russia to the close of the 18th century. By 1706, Kamchatka, the last Siberian land to be taken, had been overrun. Arrived at the Pacific, the conquerors wondered what lay beyond. There were evidences of a great land not far to the east. Strange trees drifted ashore, the swell of the ocean was not great, and the Chukchis told stories of a rich eastern continent, and well may it have seemed rich to them when the comparatively agreeable west coast of Alaska is contrasted with the bleak and stormy Siberian shore. The Russian government became interested in the American Siberia as early as 1710, and attempts were made to reach it by way of the Arctic Ocean along the north coast of Siberia, and surveys were made of the Kuril Islands. This, it may be noted, was during the reign of Peter the Great, 1682 to 1725. Peter also planned expeditions which were to proceed from Kamchatka to see whether America and Asia joined, and to make discoveries along Pacific shores from Japan to the American continent. It fell to the lot of Vitus Bering, a Dane, to execute the major part of his commands and to the reigns of his successors to see them carried out. The Bering party had first to make the overland journey across Siberia, which it started to do in 1725. Arrived at the Pacific, Bering left Okhotsk in 1727, and in the following year sailed through Bering Strait. He then returned to St. Petersburg, or Petrograd, where he recommended further voyages to discover trade routes to America and Japan and to explore the northern coast of Siberia. Plans were made on a large scale, and the expeditions were authorized in 1734, but it was six years before they got underway. Bering commanded one ship, and Alexei Chirikov the other, but the two at length became separated. On July 15, 1741, Chirikov discovered the American coast just above 55 degrees. He then sailed northwest and west, passed the Aleutian Islands, and after much suffering reached Kamchatka in October 1741. Chirikov made another voyage in 1742, but did not reach America. Bering, meanwhile, had sighted the American mainland above 58 degrees on July 16, 1741. The return voyage was one of terrible hardship. The voyagers were obliged to winter on Bering Island, where their commander died, and their survivors did not get back to Kamchatka until August 1742. Incidentally, they brought back some furs of the sea otter, and this it was which proved the impulse for a fresh series of Russian voyages. Between 1743 and 1767, a number of voyages by private individuals were made as far as the Aleutian Islands in search of furs. The year 1764 marked the beginning of a new period of imperial interest, when plans were made which resulted in the Kranitsin and Levashev expedition. Secret instructions were given, but the object seems to have been to verify the reports already received from the fur traders and to obtain as much further information as possible. The kranitsin levashev voyage took place during the years 1766 to 1769. 
the expeditionaries encountered great hardships and got no farther than the Aleutian Islands, not reaching the mainland. Levishev at length got back to St. Petersburg in 1771. Special notice should be taken of this voyage as the principal one under imperial direction in the period of most interest here. This expedition may have been the foundation for the exaggerated reports from St. Petersburg, which were transmitted to Bucareli and influenced his course of action. At about the same time, a number of books were published concerning Russian activities in the Pacific. Private expeditions continued, however, and it is impossible to say how much they entered into the rumors heard by the Spanish ambassadors. These voyages seem to have reached no farther than the Aleutian Islands. Not until 1783 did the Russians make a direct attempt to extend their fur trading operations to the Alaska mainland, for the sea otter was disappearing from the Aleutian Islands. An expedition was made under Potap Zykov, but it was a failure. In the same year, Grigor Shelikov organized a company to make a fur trading settlement, and this was established in 1784 on the island of Kadiak, the first Russian settlement in North America. Fifteen years later, in 1799, Sitka was founded on the Alaska mainland, and by 1812, Russian settlement was carried as far south as the Falerone Islands, just out from the Golden Gate. Clearly, Spain had cause to fear the Russian approach. English approaches to the Pacific coast were along a number of lines, but may be reduced roughly to two, from the Atlantic coast westward, in the most part overland, but in some degree by sea, as represented by the attempts to find the Northwest Passage, and the direct approach by sea in the Pacific itself around South America, or eastward from southern Asia, and even across the isthmus of Panama. The former was the earlier and more formidable movement, but the latter was the first to arrive and the one which in fact gave more trouble to Spain down to the close of the 18th century. English entry of the Pacific, by way of the isthmus of Panama, passed through two principal phases. The first came in the latter half of the 16th century, during the reign of Elizabeth, when English sailors plundered Spanish towns and ships, although their countries were nominally at peace. Drake and Hawkins are the typical names. The second phase came in the 17th century, when men engaged in it tended to evolve from a shadowy British allegiance into unqualified pirates. Sir Henry Morgan is the outstanding figure of this period. Just at the close of the century, also, came the unsuccessful attempt to found a Scotch colony at Darien. This marks the end of the English activity along this line of approach to the Pacific. Another line of advance, to which little space need be given because it did not in fact get near the Americas, is the British advance around Africa to southern Asia. This may be said to have begun with the chartering of the British East Indian Company in 1600, the English government granting to that company rights of trade from the Cape of Good Hope to the Strait of Magellan. A voyage to the East Indies was made in the very next year, and in little more than a decade the company had already established a post in India. As early as 1637, English ships had appeared on the coast of China, and for the next century and a half they carried on an intermittent trade there. 
Spain had little to fear from England in this period, from the direction of the East Indies, because of the English conflicts in India with the Portuguese, Dutch, and French, especially with the last named. Once the English overcame this opposition, however, they loomed up as a danger to the Spanish colonies. The capture of Manila in 1762 by an English expedition from India was a significant indication of the reality of this danger. The Croix-Galvez plan of January 1768 referred to the possibility of English and Dutch voyages from the East Indies to the Californias. Not until the last 15 years of the 18th century was this fear realized, but then numerous English ships made voyages from China to Nootka and the coasts of the far northwest. The pioneer of English voyagers around South America to the Pacific coast was Francis Drake, who made a brief stay in Alta California in 1579. His voyage showed how weak was Spain's control of the Pacific. It was never forgotten by the Spaniards, who likewise realized how much they had to fear from the presence of an enemy's ship. A fresh lesson was not long in coming. In 1587-1588, Thomas Cavendish repeated Drake's voyage, capturing a rich Manila galleon near Cape San Lucas in 1588. The 17th century was the age of buccaneers, whether virtual or real, and some of them seem to have rounded South America. One expedition, with a semblance of governmental authority, left Virginia in 1683, turned South America, and joining with buccaneers who had crossed the isthmus of Panama, engaged in operations against the Spaniards in the years 1684 to 1686. Cook, Eaton, Davis, Harris, Swan, Wafer, Cowley, Townley, Dampier, and the Frenchman Grognier were among the leaders of this enterprise. Swan and Townley got as far north as Mazatlan. The first four decades of the 18th century were marked by English voyages in which commercial objects were most largely to the fore, the promoters getting clearance papers from the government. Once in the Pacific, these voyagers acted much as had their predecessors the buccaneers, plundering the Spaniards. The voyages were different in that the government required records to be kept, many of which were published, and in the general endeavor to advance knowledge about the Pacific coasts, men of science often accompanied the expeditions. The first of this series of voyages was headed by Dampier, who left England in 1699 with a fleet of five ships. The expedition subsequently split up into four separate voyages, owing to the inability of different officers and men to agree with Dampier. Dampier got as far north as the coast of New Spain in 1704-1705, before pursuing his voyage around the world. Clipperton and Funnel got back to England by a similar voyage. The expedition had been a financial failure, but some Bristol merchants were persuaded to make another venture. The new expedition set sail in 1708 under the command of Woods Rogers. Three years later, it got back to England with an immense profit, largely the result of having captured the Manila galleon off Cape San Lucas in 1709. After this encounter, Woods Rogers took the usual route around the world. Many companies now sprang up, but they were unable to equal the success of Woods Rogers. The Shelvock-Clipperton voyages along the coast of New Spain in 1721 were the most noteworthy. 
the english voyages even when unprofitable to their backers cost the spaniards enormous losses both in property taken or destroyed and in precautionary measures they also increased england's knowledge of the pacific and its shores spain's sense of danger may well have been enhanced by the vast literature about these voyages and the popular interest in them in england a new era began with the outbreak of war between england and spain in seventeen thirty nine the departure was marked by the fitting out of an expedition at government expense a formal naval enterprise under the command of george anson anson took the customary route around the world in the years seventeen forty to seventeen forty four in the course of which he cruised the western shores of new spain failing to encounter the manila galleon he crossed to the philippine islands and took one there although he did not make a profit and lost most of his men he had caused an immense expense and a great loss to spain furthermore among the papers taken in the captured galleon were those which revealed the spanish secrets of the pacific there were sailing directions for south american coast and the trans-pacific routes with charts showing islands shoals landmarks harbors and the like the pacific was no longer a closed sea after the seven years war a new type of voyage began the semi-piratical voyages of the past were no longer in accord with public morals nor was there the excuse of war voyages for scientific objects and discovery began therefore to be sent out with instructions not to interfere with the ships or territory of european peoples with whom england was at peace the impetus came from france who having lost her colonies by the peace of seventeen sixty three was eager to replace them by new discoveries the english quickly followed the french lead by the voyage of byron seventeen sixty four to seventeen sixty six and wallace and carteret in seventeen sixty six to seventeen sixty nine these voyagers went around the world by way of south america and the south pacific then came the most important voyage of all and especially interesting here as they fall within the period of principal interest in this work the three voyages of captain james cook the first voyage occupied the years seventeen sixty eight to seventeen seventy one one object was to observe the transit of venus the island of tahiti being selected as a place at which to do it cook followed the path of byron wallace and carteret after the observation had been taken at tahiti he proceeded westward and made extensive explorations in new zealand and australia upon his return to england he was commissioned to go again to the south pacific to determine whether a great southern continent existed there about which speculation had been rife for two centuries the expedition took place in seventeen seventy two to seventeen seventy five and the myth of the southern continent was exploded perhaps a more important fact here is that in all his voyage he lost but four men and only one by sickness this was the result of special preparations by cook before his time it was usually the case that from forty to seventy-five per cent of the crew were lost cook's methods were published and were followed by later voyagers it meant that the terror of the seas had been banished and in a very great degree made spain's retention of power in the pacific so much the less secure 
Cook's third voyage left England in the year 1776, and, as will be pointed out in a later chapter, caused the Spanish government no little anxiety. One of its objects was to attack another long-standing myth, that of a practical water passage through or around North America. Cook was commissioned to approach this problem from the Pacific side. He was also to get information of the coast, and was secretly instructed to take possession for England of all lands not hitherto discovered or visited by Europeans. En route, he discovered the Hawaiian Islands in 1778, a group destined to occupy an important place in later voyages of the 18th century. He reached the North American coast in about 44 degrees and proceeded northward. Some furs were picked up from the natives for mere trifles, and were later disposed of in China at such good prices as to open the eyes of the merchants to the possibilities of the fur trade. The result was a swarm of European vessels, particularly English ships on the northwest coasts in the last fifteen years of the century. To return to Cook, he continued northward and passed through the Bering Strait, but was obliged by the ice to turn back. While wintering in the Hawaiian Islands in 1779, he was killed in an affray with the natives. The expedition proceeded under the command of Captain Clerk. Clerk also passed through the Bering Strait, but he too was forced back by the ice, and soon afterward made his way around the world to England. To sum up, it is clear that English exploration in the Pacific was gathering momentum. Each new discovery and each advance in the science of navigation or other form of knowledge brought the Spanish Empire of the Pacific just so much nearer a fall. To this must be added not only the activities of the Russians, but also the voyages of the French, Dutch, and Portuguese. Furthermore, there were foes attacking from the Atlantic side, stripping Spain bit by bit of her colonies, and expanding into the unoccupied lands that brought them nearer to the Pacific coast. A little reflection will enable one to appreciate the vastness of the problem which Spain had to face. One other factor remains to be considered, that of the English advance across the North American continent. The westward progress of what was to become the United States had reached the Mississippi by 1776, but the American movement did not represent a threatening element as regards Spain's possessions in the Pacific until after the purchase of Louisiana in 1803. Until then, the political and geographical barriers were too great for the United States to be a danger. The Spanish government did contemplate the possibility of Americans crossing the Mississippi and encroaching on New Spain, but not on the Pacific Northwest. Events in Canada, however, and particularly the activities of the Hudson's Bay Company, did indeed threaten the far-flung coast of the Californias, and the peril was recognized by Spain. One must think back to the voyages of the Cabots, followed by a procession of English mariners seeking the Northwest Passage, Frobisher, Davis, Hudson, Baffin, James, and others, if he is to get this subject in a proper focus. France, however, was the first to get a foothold in Canada, and soon afterward her colonists began to realize profits in the fur trade. Two Frenchmen, Gosilers and Radisson, paved the way for England's sharing in this trade. Dissatisfied with the rewards accorded them by the French, 
they temporarily entered the service of some englishmen who were interested in exploiting the fur trade of hudson bay and in sixteen sixty eight started english fur trading operations in that region the venture was a success and led to the chartering of the hudson's bay company in sixteen seventy the company was granted a monopoly and the proprietorship with civil and criminal jurisdiction of all hudson bay lands not actually possessed by a christian prince down to the treaty of utrecht the company was in almost continual war with the french who did not recognize its rights to the territory the treaty of seventeen thirteen however gave to england all lands embraced by the waters emptying into hudson bay and strait the region acquired was not definitely known but at all events the attacks of the french now ceased the trade in furs was very profitable perhaps for this reason the company decided to let well enough alone and adopted a policy of secrecy and restrictions all but the servants of the company were kept away from the territory and the founding of settlements and even the making of discoveries were discouraged the discovery of a strait communicating with the pacific had been one of the charter objects of the company yet it was charged with opposing a search until forced to make the attempt likewise agriculture and mining were not encouraged as a result after a century of existence the company had in seventeen seventy but seven posts all close to the hudson bay with a total population of about two hundred men all company servants this exclusive policy had not passed without criticism the most notable critic was a certain arthur dobbs who devoted a large part of his life to attacking the company because of its failure to find the northwest passage several expeditions were made under the auspices respectively of the company in self-defense against dobbs charges the government and a private concern the last name being financed by popular subscription this activity took place for the most part between seventeen thirty seven and seventeen forty seven parliament manifested interest by offering twenty thousand pounds as a reward to the discoverer of the passage but it was not found it is noteworthy that in the last of these expeditions one of the boats was named california and the forming of a settlement in the californias was contemplated if the strait should be found to serve as a base for a vast pacific trade failing to find a passage dobbs now sought a charter for a new corporation charging the hudson's bay company with failure to extend its settlements to the interior the case came up in seventeen forty nine and dobbs petition was denied the matter is of no small importance a new company would undoubtedly have stimulated exploration and might have resulted in much earlier penetration by a british enterprise to the pacific coast with consequences that stir the imagination from another standpoint the dobbs controversy is important it attained a considerable publicity and a number of books were written these came to the notice of spain and were a cause of forebodings on her part twenty years later the company at last awakened to the desirability of interior exploration the great name is that of samuel hearn hearn's first journey came in the year seventeen sixty nine he was sent out by the company to obtain information of the interior in particular he was to reach a certain river said to abound in copper ore and fur-bearing animals 
this journey was a failure and in another of seventeen seventy he again failed to reach the river of copper in december of the same year he started a third time and on this occasion was successful reaching the river since called the copper mine in july seventeen seventy one and descending it to its mouth in the arctic ocean not until june seventeen seventy two did he get back to the company's post on hudson bay the hearn explorations were followed by a new policy on the part of the company which began thenceforth to push its trading operations inland not much progress had been made however by the close of the year seventeen seventy six which marks the end of the period of principal interest dealt with here that the spanish government might well have been alarmed is proved by the remarkable westward progress of the company and its rivals in the last quarter of the eighteenth century an important competitor had sprung up in the scottish merchants of montreal themselves the successors of the french since the seven years war before that war had ended they were already pushing into the region of the great lakes and not long afterward penetrated as far as the saskatchewan river gradually they drew together and in the winter of seventeen eighty three to seventeen eighty four the northwest company was formed an organization which was to accomplish vast results in the way of exploration these companies were yet another powerful force in motion against the tottering spanish empire in seventeen ninety three alexander mackenzie a member of the northwest company reached the pacific in what is now british columbia later the hudson's bay company acquired the rights of the northwest company and by eighteen twenty eight was already operating in alta california while in eighteen forty one an agency was established at san francisco truly this line of approach represented a veritable danger to spain in the northwest far greater than that of the russians because of its greater resources in the way of an advancing base of supply the gravest danger of all was that english advance which by the declaration of independence became american in seventeen seventy six it may be assumed that the outstanding details are known and it need not be dwelt upon further than to say that it was slow moving and late to arrive but had behind it the greatest force and momentum of all in addition to a shorter and better route than those of the russians and the english all things being equal the people from the atlantic seaboard of the united states would be the first to reach the pacific in sufficient strength to possess the californias as matters turned out the equality of opportunity was not sufficiently disturbed to deprive the united states of the pacific coast but the drama of california history lies in the almost countless eventualities which tended to keep affairs in normal course to the advantage of the united states when all these elements of foreign danger are rolled into one it appears that spain's fears considerable as they were were not only not groundless but indeed far under the mark a spanish statesman who would have said in seventeen seventy six let us devote ten times as much to the californias as we have ever done before or let us abandon them would have been regarded at the very least as extravagant in his views but he would have been not far from right End of chapter twenty